welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, it's America's opening day starter, my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Well, I'm the only, only the opening day starter because everybody else was hurt. The, uh, <laughs> the Texas Rangers approach. Yes. So before we get started, if you're listening to us for the first time, we've got a prop bets game going. Uh, it's a list of 21 questions. You pick which of two things is going to happen. Uh, it's on the ringer.com. We'll tweet out the link and we're going to close that at some point early this week. I think after like a day or two's worth of games, we want to give everybody a chance to play, but not extend it so far into the season that it would be an advantage. Right. All right. Well, we made it through our first winter together. We successfully talked about baseball every week, despite no baseball being on TV. And now we are moving back to twice a week as we were during the regular season last year. So if you are just finding us for the first time, we will be doing new shows every Monday and Thursday. So that is the story. And soon we'll have actual baseball games to talk about. We're recording this right before first pitch of the first game of the 2017. 17 season. But today we are going to talk to two baseball guests who have new creations coming out. So later in the show, we're going to talk to Chipper Jones. I hardly have to say who Chipper Jones is, but he has a new memoir ball player coming out this week. So we're going to talk to him about that. And before that, we're going to talk to Hank Azaria, who plays the lead in the new IFC show, Brockmire. And you and I have both watched the full first season of Brockmire. It's a show about a down-on-his-luck broadcaster, essentially blows up, has a meltdown on air, goes away, finds himself or struggles to find himself, comes back to an indie league team and starts building himself up again to get back to the big leagues. And we both liked it a lot. Yeah, I think it's better than pitch at the risk of splitting our our listenership (laughs) right down the middle and causing a schism. And I think our disagreement over this says a lot about the two of us personally that I would be happy to psychoanalyze live on the air, but we got a jam-packed show for you today. So Yes, that's right. Can't we just say we like both? They're yeah, both we do. Good. We do, but yeah. Brockmire's better. Brockmire has Joe Buck in a recurring cameo role, which uh, he's excellent. We both love Joe Buck at the risk of dividing our new audience. We are Joe Buck fans, especially when he's not in a broadcast booth, when he can kind of be himself. He's a funny guy. There are also cameos from friends, former podcast guests, Brian Kenny, Jonah Carey, So fun show. And one last thing, you can find our predictions for the 2017 season. We were compelled to provide predictions, or at least I was compelled. Maybe you provided them. I gleefully provided predictions. (laughs) You can find those at theringer.com as well. All right, so let's get to our first guest. And we are joined now by Jim Brockmeyer himself, Hank Azaria. Hey, Hank. Yo. (laughs) So tell us the genesis of the character. I know this goes way back in many incarnations, and it's taken a, a winding road to IFC. So how did the broadcaster character begin? It started as uh, growing up in New York uh, and mimicking everything I heard. One of the main things was this voice. I call it the generic baseball announcer voice. Uh, It seemed to be the voice of almost every sports broadcast that I heard. And I got a little fascinated. You know, it's like I I started wondering, do these guys always sound like this? Do they sound like this at home? Do they they sound like this, uh, you know, in in emotional situations, in (laughs) intimate situations? 
And then that idea sort of stuck in my head. It's a voice I used on The Simpsons over the years, just here and there. Mm-hmm. And then I did it as a funnier die short. By, by about 10 years ago, it had grown into a full-blown idea of what if a guy like this had a meltdown on the air and said really appropriate things, but remained delivering it real smooth and uh, with the count right afterwards, <laughs> which the funnier die video kind of, we did a lot mockumentary. We had Joe Buck and Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen talk about Jim Brockmeyer as if he was kind of a legendary guy, a groundbreaking guy. Like even before ESPN did the pop culture references, Jim Brockmeyer was doing it. And to the extent where some people thought it was real, it was really funny. Some people thought that it actually was talking about a real guy. <laughs> and then, yeah, we developed the script and it, it was very popular, the, the video and uh, the short. And then we developed it into a movie, almost made it about three years ago, lost financing at the last minute kind of reworked it into a cable series pitch and IFC bought it and uh, it's coming out Wednesday, April 5th. So, you know, it, it was a very long and winding road. It, it was, it's been really fun to work on and it ended up, I think in the best form for it. I'm a big fan of cable TV and you can really get in there and take time with the characters and have a really nice narrative. And uh, that's not a slave to like a three act format like you have in a movie, but mostly I just wanted it to be real funny. And uh, I'm really happy with it. I think it, I think it did come out pretty funny. I agree. And one of the one of my favorite things about it is someone who's consumed a lot of baseball over the years is like Brockmeyer really nails that sort of early TV archetype of announcer. You know, you hear the, the Vin Scully in there, you know, just the, the first episode is just him talking only occasionally interrupted by the actual action of the game. There's some Harry Carey. Were there any other announcers that you sort of drew inspiration from? Well, I grew up a Mets fan. The jacket is pure Lindsay Nelson, um, who always seemed to be in a red plaid jacket, which I can never understand. The Mets have orange and blue colors, <laughs> I, I, but uh, he was always in a red plaid. Uh, it seemed to me anyway. And uh, I sent the show to Bob Costas because I, I sent it out to all baseball men that I admire that I thought might get a kick out of it. And I, I actually heard from Bob. He, he watched him. He binge watched him as well. And he called it the generic voice. It, it's almost distinct in its indistinctiveness. I mean, there's elements of all these guys. I mean, Bob Murphy, who did the Mets, was sort of more guttural Jim Brackmeyer, who I grew up listening to, along with Lindsey Nelson. And, you know, there's elements of these guys, but really it's sort of the middle of the road aspect to it, the almost indistinctiveness of it that fascinated me. And it, this voice also seemed to sell you stuff on television back in the 70s, you know, <laughs> the Ginsu Knife, you know, and, and uh, Ronco's <laughs> Kitchen Magician also seemed to have this voice. And it's almost more in the same way that like, this is an old reference, but you know how um, in the old Mary Tyler Moore show, Ted mm-hmm. Baxter was almost more about his voice than even his abilities as a newsman. Mm-hmm. Um, Brockmeyer's sort of out of that school. It's almost more about being charismatic and deep voiced than it is about his baseball knowledge, although he is very knowledgeable about baseball. He, he, he was the man in Kansas City. He, he was the youngest guy to ever, you know, call professional games. And it's a love letter to those kind of guys who are sort of a dying breed. Right. And that's that's another thing I want to ask about, because those, you know, when baseball started getting on TV in a big way in the 60s and 70s, those guys lasted about 30 years. The Vin Scully just retired. Uh, Harry Callis is dead. Dave Niehaus, Ernie Harwell, those guys, they've sort of been replaced by younger people who grew up 
you know, you said the the Brockmire voice is kind of indistinct, but you know, the modern TV announcers just sort like it sort of feels generic, and that's been a letdown to a lot of fans watching the game. You know, some of those guys are are in the show, obviously. You know, some of the bigger names like Brian Kenny and, and Joe Buck. But how hard is it to to follow in the footsteps of you know somebody who who grew up being more distinct? You know, it's tough to, to the closest modern voice I think to the vocal timber of Brockmire is John Miller. Um, mm-hmm. But John Miller is awesome. Arguably yeah. maybe the best guy around right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing hackish about how John Miller calls a baseball game, but he does kind of give you this, you know, <laughs> and which again, I, I'm so, you know, like making sounds is really my living, my bread and butter. And I kind of hook on the things that really catch my attention vocally. It's almost like Brockmire was, there's a different kind of generic, vanilla middle of the road a bit boring you've heard it all before version of broadcasting that you get today brockmire was the old school version of that which all kind of sounded the same uh now these guys they're very conversational you know they sound like themselves they're not putting on an announcer voice as much although you still get some guys who do it uh to me nowadays watching your average Saturday afternoon NCAA uh, men's basketball game, you will get a lot of guys who give you this, uh, I, you know, I'll watch, you know, you catch a random, you know, you just watch, you know, Oregon against Texas A&M basketball game, whatever. And whoever's doing the play by play, I'm like, Oh, that's a Brock Meyer. I'm uh-huh. like, man, he's really leaning into this. He's giving it to you. Um, and uh, it's still the way uh, sports is delivered sometimes. It's kind of a fallback uh, way to do it. And I don't know why. I know that men might, why that's the voice. Uh, I know that men my age find that voice, the Brockmeyer voice, for lack of a better term, very comforting. And, you know, people don't think about it. But when, when it's pointed out, that, like, why is this the way this guy's talking? It, it gets very funny to men my age. <laughs> I don't know how good your recall of 20-year-old Simpson scenes is, but there is one that comes to mind. I think it's from season eight, and it's a free pretzel day at the ballpark, and it's like a Whitey Ford is appearing at the field, and suddenly the fans start pelting the field with the pretzels because Mr. Burns wins a car, and it's, you know, uh, here come the pretzels. I'm not going to try to do the announcer voice <laughs> on a call with Hank Azaria, but I think it's you and Harry Shearer, and you end it by saying, this is a Black day for baseball. <laughs> and here come the pretzels. No, no, don't do that. You're supposed to be tasting them. Hall of Famer Whitey Ford now on the field, pleading with the crowd for for some kind of sanity. Oh, and a barrage of pretzels now knocking Whitey unconscious. Wow, this is a, this is a black day for baseball. And there's something just so funny, I think, about the juxtaposition of baseball, which is kind of this leisurely pastoral game. You know, it's your lazy summer afternoons where this game is just droning on and on. And it's just kind of a a nice, comforting thing to have in the background. And that with drugs and sex and musings on mortality and some of the dark comedy aspects of Brockmire just seems like a really great juxtaposition that when you compare that stuff with baseball, it's so different from what you're expecting that the humor is amplified. Well, yeah, agreed. And that's what became a lot of the jumping off point of the show is I have to credit the writer Joel Church Cooper because, you know, to me, the short 
is very funny, I think. It's pretty much what I had to offer with this. It's observational. It's kind of outrageous. It's pretty sophomoric. And it's basically like, you know, what if a guy like that flipped out and then just kept on giving you the count, which I always find hilarious. Like I grew up listening to Phil Rizzuto do Yankee broadcasts who seemed to tell you more about the Italian meal he had the night before than the game. <laughs> Mm-hmm. you know, peppered with the count. And it was just insane. Like, oh man, we had some sausage and peppers. So, you know, my grandma used to call it sausage. Breaking ball just misses outside two and one. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's such a weird way to deliver information. And then I imagine, well, what if that got a little more weird? You know, like, what if this guy's talking about, oh, man, I am a little bit exhausted, folks. You must forgive me. He spent a good part of the evening with local law enforcement about, oh, an eight ball of Coke and a Filipino hooker <laughs> named Luwewe is uh, swinging a miss at a breaking ball there on one. I mean, it's just like, what? All right, two outs now, bottom of the eighth, or as I used to know with the Jerry's Gelatin home run inning. Gelatin is made from the bones of slaughtered cows and pigs, which are then crushed and treated with acids and chemicals until they're reduced to a fine collagen powder. Fastball just catches the inside corner 0-1. I ask you, Morristown, what kind of a creature doesn't just kill its prey, but then uses science to rob it of its very living essence? Stevens just misses with a breaking ball outside. Count evens 1-1. You'd almost accept anything as long as the count was given afterwards. But then Joel Cooper <laughs> kind of really, he saw, he almost made it literary. He like saw Brockmeyer as this, as a representative of baseball in our culture, meaning this ancient sort of pastoral, you know, roots of America guy rooted in yesterday and the traditions of yesterday and sort of to the point where he's unaware of the internet and doesn't think twice about what an alcoholic he is and, you know, not aware that ba- that the youth of today might find baseball incredibly boring and that if you are that much of a character, people are going to, and, and you publicly disgrace yourself like that on video, that the whole world, you're going to be Winnebago man. I mean, he's literally, it's almost like a man from 50 years ago has to be ushered into the modern day world. And somehow Joel captured all that and made it really, really funny and immediate all through the lens of baseball. I don't know how he did it. It was way beyond what I was shooting for, but I'm very grateful. And it it seemed to work out, you know. Yeah. And that's one thing I liked about it is like that's the premise of somebody coming back essentially like from from space after 10 years and discovering the internet. Like this is one of the, one of the few times I've seen that issue like confronted in, in TV without it being, you know, poking fun at, at young people necessarily. And one of the, the other issues that I guess this had to, had to take place in some sort of backwater small town, but it's a very specific setting and sort of, and it, one of the heaviest issues that it deals with is the natural gas company. And, you know, this is an issue that's, destroyed towns and destroyed lives across central Pennsylvania. So how involved were you in in picking the setting or was that Joel or was that somebody else? And, you know, what went into choosing this specific setting to, to grant the show? And, you know, again, it was similar. It was like we, I had the idea that it should be a small town. It should be bottom of the barrel where this guy is trying to make his way back into baseball. It was Joel who kind of not politicized it, but made it real relevant. Like it should be a fracking town. I mean, what better place than a fracking town to both for comedic and dramatic purposes. I mean, the, the place smells horrible fracking and, and crystal meth are basically the town's two industries now. 
Joel has that way of writing folks who no one's good or bad. Everyone's sort of three dimensional and is kind of awful and kind of wonderful at the same time. You know, these people, the fracking did save them. I mean, you know, it's made a lot of money for a lot of folks in town. It's also ruining the town and ruining everybody's health. But they didn't have much else going on. We were inspired a lot by the excellent sports comedies of the 70s, most notably. And this was my vision was Bad News Bears, Slapshot. In both those movies, especially in Slapshot, the town is and yeah. the working class town and how it's how it's crumbling is part of the story and absolutely almost a character in the film. And it is part of this story. And in bad news bears, you know, an alcoholic essentially redeeming himself by reconnecting with baseball. And the only way that's available to him in this, in that case was is coaching a little league team for Brockmeyer. It's calling this ridiculous minor league team. And we were also influenced. You guys have probably seen battered bastards of baseball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also influences us a lot too. We, we, Joel and I loved that. And the way that uh, I had no idea, I didn't know that story, the way Bing Russell, Kurt Russell's dad sort of used this Bill Veck gamesmanship to sort of make this independent league team vital again uh, and, and give these guys all a second chance at their careers. These guys who baseball had passed by uh, inspired us a lot, too. Yeah. So what are the challenges of, of doing a a sports show as opposed to doing something, you know, you've the Simpsons has touched on sports. You were in mystery Alaska, but you know, you've acted in numerous situations. So, you know, how is sports different from some other sort of workplace comedy? Well, sports is a niche, you know, I mean, it does seem from the outside, this is, you know, it's a baseball show. So if you love baseball, awesome. And if you don't, you would have no interest. I, you guys have seen it. It happens to be not true of this thing. It's incredibly mm-hmm. original love story. Yeah. There's not that much baseball, really. I mean, there's it finds a good balance between actual on-field action, which at times can look unconvincing or it can kind of drag. It's it's mixed in there, but it's always sort of the backdrop for the relationships between the characters or Brockmeyer's commentary. Exactly. I mean, it's arguably more about social media and digital <laughs> the digital world we live in than about maybe anything else. It's probably the most time is spent on dealing with, you know, how information and entertainment's delivered and the effect it has on people's lives. But you know, to me, again, mostly it's just really funny. You know, it just um, it 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 genuinely it's about really genuinely about human beings and looks at them honestly and the absurdity uh, of. Uh, some of the modern uh, conventions that we live with and how we all deal with it. That's what I'm most proud of. It's just really about human beings in an honest way. And that's really funny. We found in the short, you know, that we found a lot, we shot a lot of material for the short. I thought this would have lent itself to broad comedy. It does occasionally, but to our surprise, as we cut the short, as we edited it, this was funniest when it seemed like it was happening in the real world. I was sort of surprised by that. I mean, this guy, Brockmire, is such a bizarre character. I mean, a guy who walks around really describing everything he sees as a baseball announcer would and who relates to people in this way and expresses emotion and, uh, you know, dark emotion this way. It's only funny if you really believe people are reacting to that as one might in the, if you encountered it in the real world. And there's a character, Charles, played by Tyrell Jackson Williams, who's really good. Uh, he's kind of your sidekick, friend, mentee, sort of the social media wizard for this team. And he's kind of the lens, I guess, by which you 
give us a look at baseball through the eyes of someone who has not grown up watching baseball. He knows almost nothing about baseball and that who hates baseball. <laughs> yeah, right. Has no interest in it. And that kind of lets you explore the question of whether baseball is losing popularity, whether it can connect with young people and also kind of lets you expose how absurd baseball is in a lot of ways that we almost don't even think about just because it's second nature for us. Of course, there's a kangaroo court scene. There's always a kangaroo court scene and he is appointed the judge because he's supposed to be impartial, but he rules the wrong way because he can't understand what the appropriate action for someone to take like in a baseball brawl is the guy is the guy who means the player guilty or is the guy who refuses to be in the player guilty? So there are all these weird quirks of the sport that you can convey, I think, in the show. And since you are kind of in the, you know, 50-year-old white male demographic of baseball, is this something you devote a lot of time to thinking about? Whether baseball has a strong future, whether it can appeal to youth who are used to something different? Totally. I love baseball. I love the Mets. Um, I sometimes wish I didn't. They caused me a lot of pain over the years. Oh, they're doing it right now. But, and you know, my son's about to be eight. I'm introducing him to the, 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 the joys and sorrows of being a Met fan. And when, I don't know if you guys have kids, but when you just try to describe ba- the rules of baseball and the intricacies of baseball and the traditions of baseball to a young one, you really do get how insane a lot of it is. Uh, how complicated a lot of it is. I mean, even silly mundane things like, you know, genuinely like, why is it called a walk if they jog down to first? I'm like, I, you know, that's a good question. Or dad, why, what does spitting have to do with the game? Why is everybody spitting? Like, um, hmm, uh, very good question again. Also, even the different, and semantic craziness is like, dad, what is the difference between running home and a home run? (laughs) It's hard to explain to a seven-year-old. The runs versus points back and forth was... (laughs) Right. It's uh, one of those that I really enjoyed because yeah, I've had that conversation with people who aren't all that familiar with baseball before. Yeah, it's it's not so obvious. And uh, there are some things that a seven year old just actually can't understand. And uh, he's like, you'll you'll get it in a couple of years. Just stay with it. Just stick to the simplistics of the game. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in the series in that kangaroo court, Tyrell Williams, who's amazing. You explain to him that, you know, yeah, you know, he, would, he wouldn't throw a beanball. He wouldn't throw a ball at the other player's head. He's like, well, obviously the guy who asked him to do that is guilty. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's a common baseball request. And his response, just the very whispered, baseball is an effed up sport. And I want you to know that. <laughs> so one more question for me, and I apologize for going wildly off topic, but I don't know if I'm ever going to have this opportunity to ask you this again. You were on the receiving end of one of the best line deliveries in movie history, the the she's got a great ass line from Al Pacino and Heat. And I just from I want to know what it was like to sit in that chair at that moment. It was fairly insane. You know, that's funny how that moment is standing the test of time. I was uh, I was on Adnan Verk's show yesterday and boy, was he obsessed with that as well. Um, <laughs> it's a great movie. I love that movie. Heat is an amazing movie. And I was thrilled to be a part of it. There's a lot of craziness about that moment. First of all, I shot it on my 30th birthday and Al Pacino and I have the same birthday and we shot it all night. It was his birthday and my birthday. And I went straight from the set of heat doing that scene straight to the birdcage set. I was shooting that movie as well. I shot 24 hours straight on my 30th birthday, (laughs) ridiculously enough. And 
Michael Mann, that scene probably should have taken oh, four hours to shoot. It took us all night because Michael Mann, he just does dozens upon dozens of takes. <laughs> and I think that that insane line reading from Al came out of just pure insanity. Just, it was the 958th time he was delivering that line that night. He just decided to he I probably was genuinely going insane and just screamed <laughs> it at the top of his lungs. And, uh, you know, Michael Mann, Al was, Mr. Pacino, I should say, was ad-libbing like crazy just to switch things up. I was young enough and scared enough and naive enough to not. I just stuck to the script because Michael Mann preferred me to. Now I would have just started improvising right along with Al. But the only ad-libbed line that I had all night was my genuine fear reaction to Al screaming that into my face and scaring the heck out of me. And I went, Jesus, you'll see in the stuff. You go watch the scene again. Al does that. And I go, Jesus. And then Al goes, I'm sorry. Something happens to me. Whatever he explains. Uh, and uh, I, there's no acting at all in that. Oh, man. I just... Why'd I get mixed up with that bitch? Because she got a great ass! And you got your head all the way up it! Jesus. It was not me deciding the character should say Jesus. It was me, Hank Azaria, being terrified <laughs> of Al Pacino yelling into my face. <laughs> um, Is there any improvisation on Brockmire? Do you ever just go into the broadcaster spiel and come up with a line that stays in? There was a ton, although mo I would say 90% of what you see is literally off the page of what Joel Church Cooper mm -hmm. wrote. Uh, a, because we didn't have a ton of time or money, so we had to really be concise. And also, I just, Joel writes this better than I could ever envision it. I Occasionally here and there, I will add this or that. The person who probably improvised the most was Tyrell Williams because he, you know, Joel, you know, Joel's a 38-year-old uh, white guy and mm -hmm. couldn't always capture the voice of a credible, smart 16-year-old black kid. And so Tyrell was sort of in charge of transposing it <laughs> into how that would sound. And Tyrell is genuinely funny on his own. But uh, no, mostly what you see was written by Joel. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you can find Hank on Twitter and Instagram at his name, Hank Azaria. You can hear him on The Simpsons, as if anyone needs me to tell them that, season 28. And now you can hear him on season one of Brockmire, airing on IFC, starts Wednesday. And our history with talking to people who've made baseball shows so far, we, we've done a segment on the Fox show Pitch before, and it is still a show. It has not been canceled yet. It hasn't been renewed yet <laughs> Either, but we haven't jinxed anyone completely yet. So we hope this does well. We enjoyed it. And thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, guys. All right. And we'll be right back with Chipper Jones. So our next guest can only be described as one of the all-time great third basemen. He is also the author of the new book, Ball Player, out April 4th. We're pleased to welcome Chipper Jones to the podcast. Chipper, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, guys. It's uh, great to be with you today. So I, I want to start by saying this, that I grew up as a Phillies fan and the first 20 years of my baseball following life uh, overlap almost perfectly with your playing career. And so <laughs> you probably have caused me more personal pain and anguish than any other athlete uh, ever to exist. So I want to say with that in mind that I'm really enjoying your retirement and want to see if you felt the same way. Well, you, you'd be uh, surprised at how many 
you know, Phillies and Mets fans through the years or through the, the, you know, the, this is my fifth year of being out of the game have come up and said exactly what you just said. I, I went out to dinner with my, my father last night and sure enough, the waiter is a Mets fan grew up, you know, in Queens. And I mean, just hammered me for, you know, the hour and a half that we were sitting there, but you know, it's it's uh it was it was a lot of fun playing up in the in the northeast. The the fans are they're rabid, they're fanatical and makes it uh makes it a, a pretty fun environment to play in. So after your playing career, what's the, the motivation behind wanting to, to write a book? I mean you don't don't need the money, you don't need the fame, you know, why why put something like this out? No motivation really just presented with the opportunity and said you know what i mean why not it's it's uh i'll tell you what it, it certainly cured me of ever wanting to do it again uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it was it was about uh, two two and a half years of sitting down with carol rogers walton and and uh, whether it was on the phone or whether she was at the house, whether she's, you know, I mean, she stayed with me for weekends and, and whatnot. And now that the book tour, you know, I'm a pretty private guy, like doing my own thing and playing golf with my buddies and hanging out here at the house with, with the wife and kids and, and whatnot. So I don't like to travel and get out there. So, you know, the book tour is what it is, but um, Carol always said, and, and she was used to be one of our beat writers, for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. So I know her very well. I had to have somebody that I trusted to be able to help me with the book. And she always said I was a great storyteller. And I don't know if that's true. You, you guys read the book and, and judge for <laughs> yourself. But when she asked me, and I don't know, I just felt like, you know, I had some things to offer that, that people might enjoy a little behind the scenes look into not just what was happening in the dugout, the clubhouse on the field, but also in my personal life as well. Maybe that some things that needed some clarification. And that's where the, the premise of the book started. And a lot of the stories you tell in the first chapters are just about being baseball obsessed from an early age and wearing your uniform to bed and watching games and travel teams and the whole thing. If every major league player wrote a memoir, and sometimes it seems like almost all of them do, but if they did, how many of them would have early sections that looked exactly like that? Like, did you play with guys who maybe made it to the majors on talent, but came to the game later or didn't know they wanted to be a baseball player from day one or didn't put that kind of dedication in, but were just able to get there anyway? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there, there's a... Uh... You know, every every guy is different. You know, you got the the uh, quote unquote gym rats or the you know the cage rats. You know, I that was me. I was a cage rat. I was a gym rat. I was doing something. You know, if I wasn't playing football as a kid, I was doing something in and around the baseball field. You know, my game itself, doing something to to better. You know, I, I've played with guys that probably physically had more talent than I did, but just didn't have the desire to, to work at. And then I've played with guys who didn't have a lick of talent, but they worked themselves into being a pretty darn good ball player, you know? So there's a bunch of different ways to skin a cat, a bunch of different ways to get to the big leagues. And through the years, I've seen it all. You know, if you, uh, let's, let's take Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz, for example. Smoltz has all the talent. 
in the world, you know, uh, obviously has the repertoire to be a dominant pitcher. Um, you've got uh, Glav, who probably got more out of less, you know, than any of those three pitchers. And then you've got Doggy, who's, you know, he could show up five minutes before he's supposed to walk out to the bullpen. And, and uh, not that he was that way, but he just had that kind of laid back, I don't care, attitude. And, you know, went out there and was gifted, you know, with the ability to be able to move the baseball and change speeds and analyze what hitters were doing. So there's a bunch of different ways to, to, to do it. And uh, uh, I've seen it all, you know, throughout, uh, you know, my 25 years in the game. You know, you read a book like this for the stories that you didn't know about already. And a lot of that took place in, you know, in your childhood and your high school years. And one thing I, I thought was really interesting was that you started talking about uh, your dad teaching you to play baseball. And I got worried that this was going to be like a, a press Maravich, Marv Marinovich story. But he always seemed to to push you, but never really cross that line. Like, you know, recusing himself from coaching you, that sort of thing. How important was that, that, that he knew where that line was and, you know, knew when to, to let other people take over? Yeah. Um, I, I really wanted to get that point across. I didn't want my dad to sound like a Marinovich or a LeVar Ball or somebody like that. You know I mean? It, this was, you know, more me being anal saying, Hey dad, let's, <laughs> Let's go to the ballpark. Let's go outside. I mean, I, <laughs> when I used to, to try to get him to come outside and, and play a game with me, you know, for about the ninth or tenth day in a row, I could I could feel him rolling his eyes going, oh, God, you know. It wasn't, you know, he was not overbearing whatsoever. He did not pressure me whatsoever. Trust me, when uh, it was football season, he was out there throwing passes to me. Uh, when it was basketball season, he was underneath the hoop, getting it and passing the ball back to me. I mean, we did everything with whatever was in season. That's what we played. That's what we worked on. But we both knew where my bread was buttered, if you will. And once the springtime came around, it was a little, the, the, the workout sessions were a little more intense, but like you said, never overbearing in the least. And you tell this story about your first year in rookie ball and you were going through a slump and you decided to hit right-handed only because switch hitting was giving you problems and you asked your manager for permission and he said, sure, go ahead. And then after 10 days or so, the Braves brass descended on the team and ordered you to go back to switch hitting and that manager didn't last very long. Do you think that there was any realistic scenario where if they hadn't come down that quickly and said, hey, go back to working on this, you might have just stuck with one side of the plate. Is there any way where you wouldn't have become a, a permanent switch hitter? That was, uh, no, it was not an option. You know, this is a, a, a situation where an 18-year-old kid is struggling. And I knew that I could hit left-handed, but I wasn't at that particular time. I was really, really struggling. And all I wanted to do was live up to being a number one pick. I was sitting right around 200, maybe under 200 at the time that I went into my coach's office and I was swinging about really, really well right-handed, wasn't swinging it well left-handed. And the first thing I said to him when I walked into the office was, hey, I'm not giving it up. I'll keep working on it on the side, but I'd like to get my numbers up and I'm feeling really good right-handed. I think I can, you know, contribute more 
if I were to just hit right-handed for a little bit until I started feeling more comfortable lefty. He's like, sure, Chip, go ahead. You know, no problem, whatever. And sure enough, I hot for about a week and, and, you know, lifted my average up 20 or 30 points uh, to a respectable 220 or 230. And, uh, yeah, as you said, the, the brass caught wind of that and uh, they made a beeline down and sat me down to – you know, you are absolutely not giving this up and you're going to do it in games. We don't care what you hit down here. We don't care how many errors you make in the field. Just go play baseball and develop your game so that when you get to the big leagues and when it's time to, to contribute up there, you've got your all around game is polished and it's not going to get polished if you shelve your left hand as one. So you had really unusual stability in your career, not only playing your entire career with the Braves, but you had those teammates, you know, those three pitchers stay with you for such a long time. And one of the only things that really changed was you. And you talked about how going into the 99 season, you start lifting weights more. And then as you're getting to the end of the year, you know, your, your knees start acting up, you know, what is that, physical transformation like do you feel that happen in segments or does it does it just all happen gradually yeah it's a gradual process i think uh you know my workout regimen from about the mid to late 90s right on through the end of my career never really changed all that much i still feel like the game of baseball is played you know from the shoulders to the wrists you know, and, and I was always concerned with making sure that my forearms were strong, making sure that my shoulders were strong so that I didn't have, you know, uh, throwing problems and, and, and whatnot. And uh, obviously getting stronger, building that upper body strength is, is something that's going to help more than anything. I think the only time I ever, you know, really spent much time on my legs was after surgery. And uh, I had <laughs> I started working out quite a bit with my legs because I had seven knee surgeries during the course of my career, and I had two ACL replacements, which you know took two years away from me. So you know it's just it's a gradual process as you you know as you get rid of the baby fat, you know your old man strength starts taking over. <laughs> and uh, you know the whereas when I came up, I, I don't know I hit twenty two or twenty three homers my my rookie year. And gradually you start to see those numbers, you know, kind of elevate and kind of elevate and then they plateau and then they come back down as you, you know, as you get older. So yes, the, the, the workout part was a necessity, but ultimately that workout regimen that I had is one of the reasons that I, that I retired because I just, I didn't look forward to, to getting into the gym and, and working as much as I had to work. Uh, in order to be successful. And you won the World Series as a rookie, your first full season, and then, you know, you get back to the playoffs time after time after time and don't quite get all the way. When you look back, do you wish that baseball were structured differently? Do you wish it were less random in October that if you kept winning division titles, you're bound to win a World Series? Or does it just kind of make it more special when it happens because it's so unpredictable? And and do you wish you'd reacted to the you know, enjoyed the 95 title more if you had known it was going to be your only one. Oh, I enjoyed the 95 title. You don't have to worry <laughs> about that. Um, I think it's certainly, it, it's easy to see why, you know, a team, a dynasty like 
like the Yankees won so many times back in the day. You know, it was just American League versus National League. There were no, you know, rounds of playoffs. The best team in each league played each other for the World Series, you know. And and nowadays, there's, you know, there's 10 teams that, that make the playoffs. And quite honestly, anybody can get hot. At, at any given time. And it's, it is a little more of a crapshoot now. Uh, I'm sure it's very special regardless of, of what kind of format it's under. You're still the last team standing. You still, you know, are have an entire season that starts in February and culminates in a championship with 25 other guys. There's nothing, nothing better than that in team sports. So, I don't know. You know, we all know uh, why there are 10 teams that make the playoffs now. It's all about the, the, the big bucks and, you know, the more teams that make it to the playoffs, the more cities, you know, are bringing in that revenue. So it's, there's no stopping it now, but it is more of a marathon. I mean, uh, when you talk about 30 games in spring training, 162 games, and then making it all the way through the World Series, trying to prepare your body year in and year out for over 200 games, is it's, it's a grind and it's taxing, but I can I can promise you, <laughs> when you are the last team standing, it is well well worth it. Mm-hmm. And last question, you are pretty open in the book about how your personal life got complicated and kind of ran off the rails at times earlier in your career. And you mentioned in one of those sections that maybe if David Justice and Terry Pendleton and sort of veteran mentors like that had been around, they could have kept you in check. And I'm wondering how exactly that happens. How do players police other players' personal lives as opposed to their on-field performance? Well, it just gives you a sounding board to be able to bounce things off. I was so close with those guys and had such good relationships with those guys that, you know, going out to dinner, just have a certain comfort level with certain guys. And and once those guys, you know, kind of move away through free agency or get traded away, as David did before the uh, 97 season, now all of a sudden you, you don't have that sounding board you don't have something you know somebody that you can bounce stuff off of that can give you you know that kind of advice and all of a sudden you're you're left to do things yourself and maybe you make a bad decision here or there you, sh- you know you you stray off course you know for a time and and that's certainly what happened with me i got uh, i got really caught up in the, the fame and the notoriety early on and i think you know all the guys that i relied on for you know moral support within the clubhouse and and a little bit of guidance because i certainly needed it they weren't there and i didn't feel comfortable enough you know with someone else and those those decisions are spur of the moment decisions and you look back and you're like man how could you be so stupid but you know when you're young you got the world by the tail you think you're invincible and uh, it took uh, a couple of very humbling experiences uh, through the course of my life to, to kind of bring me back down to earth and say, you know what, you need to change things or else you're not going to be playing this game that you love so much, very much longer. All right. Well, the book is called Ball Player. It's out April 4th, and you can find Chipper on Twitter also at RealCJ10. Good luck with the Hall of Fame voting results at the end of the year. Not that you should need it or that I think you will need it, but... 
can you get Maddox to write a memoir? When can we get that? Because now, oh, now that I've read the shower <laughs> scenes with Maddox from your yeah. perspective, yeah, I wanna, I'd I like to hear it from his perspective. On over the years. Yeah. I know, exactly. As bad as I uh, uh, ragged on him in this book, I'm sure he'd come back sevenfold on me if he ever writes a <laughs> memoir. So I'll be sure to let him know when I talk to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chipper. All right, guys. See you later. You know, Michael, Chipper's only about a year older than Bartolo Colon. I think he should get back out there. Anyway, that is it for today. Our first show of the regular season in the books. Thank you, partner. I'm just glad nobody got hurt on opening day. Yeah, I don't think we even hurt anyone's feelings. So enjoy the next few days of baseball, and we will talk to you on Thursday. Thursday.